Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning broadcast. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. It's good to be back and hear your dulcet tones once again. I appreciate that. There are a lot of people out there who are ready to stone me. That you had not appeared in a couple of weeks on this show, so I'm very glad you're back. And well, I thank the first you. week was your fault. That's correct. Everything else is mine. <laughs> the man takes responsibility. You own it. What is it? So these days, it's so nice to see somebody own it when they do something that people object to. Well, welcome back, and I thank you. All right. So you know what everyone's uh, primarily. I mean, there are a lot of things that people are primarily interested in, but the number one item of the last couple of weeks, of course, is what's happening uh, in Gaza. The fire kites, the terrorism, uh, the attempts, it seems, by both Israel and Egypt, maybe toss some Hamas leadership in there, I don't know, you could tell us, to have some type of ceasefire. Could you tell us what the situation is currently? Well, it's uh, certainly in flux, and um, the... the um, and there are various levels about when you analyze what's happening. First is between Israel and and Hamas, there are definitely talks going on that would uh, more or less mimic the, 2015, the 2014 agreement after the the war, the last war, where there would be uh, various phases, including one where the MIAs being held in, in the bodies being held by Hamas and two um, people, two Israelis who crossed the border, would be returned in exchange for a prisoner, uh, a large number of Hamas prisoners, that obviously arouses a lot of resentment. Second, there would be a big investment in Gaza, uh, industrial investment, business development, uh, a sea lane that Israel would monitor and would have security control of between Gaza and Cyprus, uh, and various other components. Uh, this is uh, Egypt is playing a very critical role in the, in the negotiations, and it's an, essentially another quiet for quiet deal. Uh, I'm sure the people in Steyrot and other areas are very skeptical because Hamas always takes advantage of it for the time they need to rebuild. Israel hit them very hard during recent weeks. Uh, the one day we had a, over 100 uh, raids, I think as many as 150, in fact, was very effective. And Hamas um, essentially had to, to give in, and they're losing support amongst the people in Gaza for the demonstrations and for the uh, the actions. They continue to launch the uh, incendiary devices, which have caused a, a lot of damage, destroyed a lot of businesses. Uh, people are complaining why Israel didn't go in and just carpet bomb, and others say there has to be a land invasion. These are obviously very complicated, and Israel has to consider the loss of life that it would suffer. Hamas, for its very raison d'etre, needs to have a conflict. I don't think that long-term they will retain much support, except for the fact that they have a, you know, their reason to exist is to, to fight Israel. Then you have the second level, which is the PA versus Hamas, which has not progressed, and Abbas wants to boycott all of the talks. He... he um, they have left open the government positions that the Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, should come in and take over uh, the government because Hamas can't afford it. They have no money and resources. The funding from Qatar has been uh, cut, the traditional funding, and, and transferred through 
or in conjunction with the IDF in other ways. The Iranians have cut back on their funding. Turkey also being economically squeezed is cutting back. So they they are in a rather desperate situation. There's no gasoline, and there's the water shortages. Electricity is only two hours a day. And part of it is, is uh, uh, Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, wanted to cut it because they wanted to build the pressure on and didn't want to negotiate with Hamas, wanted them just to give in. Uh, so that battle is still going, and it, it sort of uh, reflects on the Abbas's refusal to talk to the Americans, talk to the Israelis on a peace process as well. And people question what is the value of a ceasefire if it's just with uh, if it's just with Hamas, what about right. Islamic Jihad? What about some of the other groups? Can they really uh, control control the um, the area? So my my bet is a short term for sure, longer term questionable. Um, well, you, I'm sure you've been in Israel recently with all the traveling and stuff, so you might you may know you know close to or possibly accurately in terms of the damage. Do we know what the statistic is, and I hate to boil it down to a stat, but do you, do you know what the statistic is in terms of, of fire damage in Israel's south? Do we know how many, I don't know, square kilometers or how many small towns or kibbutzim or yishuvim? Do, do we know anything that would give us a perspective on what the enemy has done? Well, we did keep track of the numbers, uh, but it, it, they've really amounted so much. Uh, uh, even a month ago, it was about 8,000 acres. So we'd all be stunned by what it is today. It's very large, and that's part of the problem is that people uh, discount these balloons and uh, kites and other things, but they land on buildings, they land, uh, and you have to look at some of the pictures of the farms destroyed at a time when you have the harvest coming in. You have uh, buildings that were destroyed. One landed, as you know, in the kindergarten, and thank God the kids were evacuated and the damage was, was more limited. But you had forests, and we have nature reserves, aside from the air pollution and water pollution, from the burning of tires and from all of the um, fires that were set. And yet you don't hear any of those people uh, uh, speaking out. So the, the answer is the amount of the, the destruction is much greater than people realize because they launch hundreds of these um, balloons or, or whatever they're using that day, and it's it they can't take them all down, and you can't chase each one of them. So they, they uh, yeah, the, the amount of damage, I think, when it's finally calculated, it, it's going to run into the tens of millions of dollars, and we will see what happens. By the way, I think one of the issues that, that will come up, you know, for the Fatah has called, Abbas has called the um, for a meeting, I think on Wednesday, uh, and the issues they're going to talk about is Israel, Hamas, Trump. Uh, but the real question that will be beneath the surface is the succession issue. Oh, wow. Because, you know, he was elected in 2005. Right. He's already into the, so the 13th year of his four-year term. And the um, the question of the ceasefire, all these things will, will escalate the interest. They're very angry, obviously, at the Trump administration and U.S. policy um, because they did the right thing, and he, he obviously uh, objects to it. But there's a, a, a lot of talk because he's older. He's you know people don't necessarily like the fact that he refuses to talk. 
but he controls uh, right now the apparatus. Right. I asked you about the comparison or about the statistic regarding the land down south. What about the we are and you alluded to this minutes ago that that, that there has been some activity um, vis-a-vis Israel bombing uh, Gaza, going in and and uh, you know with targeted strikes, etc. Is there any comparison? To the damage that Israel was able to do four years ago, or or it's almost nothing compared to that. It, it was not no, nothing. It was quite serious what Israel did. They uh, the, the reason why you don't read so, as much about it is because they are doing it in a targeted way, and civilian casualties are very limited. But when you take out a hundred to hundred and fifty targets in a single day, they hit the headquarters. Of Hamas, people said they saw the papers flying out of the debris, right. and um, they have done targeted hits against some of the leadership. People are arguing that they should have done more of that. But the, the um, um, you know Israel does not want to see a complete collapse in Gaza because then number one, it could fall on them. It's also why Israel, the IDF, urged the United States not to cut all the funding of of UNRWA. Because if you don't have the money for the schools for other things, humanitarian efforts, we want to see reform, but they want to see the flow because the, the total collapse will impact Israel as well. And the, um, um, so Israel didn't go in and do carpet bombing, which you saw some people called for, made a decision that they would try to limit the civilian casualties. They get no credit for that anywhere in the world. And the the but the impact on the infrastructure of Hamas is great. You know, it's interesting, and I guess this is obvious to many. But it, it, with all this that's going on, with the ceasefire um, uh, attempts that are being made, uh, when I speak or anybody I think in this audience, when we speak to I don't know members of the media from Israel or, or members of the IDF who are visiting here from Israel or just you know tra- trainees in Israel. Um, who people come in contact with, especially now during the summer, uh, there's more interaction. It, it, it seems like everybody is is prepared for an immediate call up, and I guess again that that's not unusual. <laughs> you know, I, I guess that that's you know the usual practice in general in Israel. But but I, I don't know when you speak to certain people, you get the idea like we are you know minutes away from a real declaration of war in the area. But again, I assume that just because that's the way Israel must be. Otherwise, their uh, military wouldn't be as effective as it would be in the long run. Well, you're right that uh, that, that was the, the the reports, and I think that no one yet believes that that is still not an option. Uh, the escalation has become intolerable. The damage, the, what, what's happened to life along the border areas, and, and even further, the fact that a rocket hit Beersheba was really a, a red line that was crossed. Right. Good point. About yeah. a stronger response. So... I don't think it was idle chatter about the possibility that Israel was going to go all out. It may also be partially a tactic to put Hamas on notice that they were ready to move, and and um, and I believe that they that they were ready. That that this was you know a, a decision that might have been reached, but they're giving all the other options a chance so that no one can say later <clears throat> you didn't try everything. And mm-hmm. the Egyptian involvement. Is also, you know, for Israel, very critical. Now, if the South has many angles and tentacles to it, the North really has a lot of angles and tentacles to it, and uh, that's because of uh, Hezbollah 
and the Lebanese border and Iran and their presence in Syria and the the conflict in general along the Israeli-Syrian border, which you could tell us if it's any better or worse. And then you have, uh, you know, Putin, the U.S., and Netanyahu either debating or discussing whether they want Iran out of Syria or not. By the way, start there for a minute. It does seem that that the reports are in the most recent editions uh, uh, of the of the press that that Putin and uh, and and Trump would would both like the Iranian presence in Syria to be gone. Would you, would you do we believe Putin when it comes to that? Yes, because he well he can't pull them out right away, and they were allies. And it's not just Iran getting out; it's getting out Iran's. Uh, tens of thousands of Shiite militia, more of whom are integrated into the Syrian forces. The Syrian forces are spent, their own, they're exhausted, their their numbers have diminished greatly, they don't have enough manpower, they've succeeded in, in capturing uh, virtually the whole country uh, with Russian backing. As you see in the Golan now, you have Russian police moving in, and Syria wanting to turn over the area adjacent to the Golan to the UN forces, the UNIFIL forces and the UNIFIL's mandate is coming up, and we hope that they will be more effective. But they certainly didn't live up to Resolution 1701, Security Council Resolution, which should have banned weapons coming into the area, that there was supposed to be one military force not having Hezbollah separate from the Lebanese army. The Lebanese army is weaker than Hezbollah today. The, but Hezbollah seems to want to keep the border quiet. They don't want a war right now, Nasrallah. Um, uh, and so the, all the action is shifted to the Syrian part of the border with Israel. And there you have uh, a number of factors. One, of course, the Syrian army itself. The second, the, and, and Egypt, uh, I'm sorry, Russia has outposts, about eight outposts that are manned by their uh, police. Uh, this is more as observers and um, uh, monitors. Then you have the uh, situation along the Israeli-Syrian uh, border where we've had incursions. You have uh, groups, including ISIS and others, not just the uh, Iranians, that have um, continued attempts to bring in uh, more and more sophisticated weapons and Israel acting uh, to try and, and limit that. So the, the the action, there's so many layers. And Putin, his interest is in keeping Assad, which seems now to be achieved. Second, he does not want to have the competition with Iran. They still have a lot of animosity, although they need each other right now, just as Turkey and Russia uh, are needing each other. The Syrian economy, three-quarters of it has been destroyed. Their foreign reserves in 2010 were $71 billion. By 2015, it was down to $1 billion. So today it's probably uh, um, non-existent. And so Syria's interest is not to have a war with Israel. It's to quiet things down. It's to restore their control. It is to um, uh, try to rebuild the infrastructure, and there are many who want to do that so, so that this, the refugees will go back. And they're talking about uh, programs to to increase the spending, but the um, if you look at the numbers, what the Syrian uh, budget is and what the available money for government spending, it's it's a fraction of what it was before. 
So you, you have a you know pretty desperate situation within Syria. You still don't have you still have the presence of a lot of uh, rogue groups. You still have areas where there's fighting, uh, where the U.S. troops are against ISIS together with the Kurds, and then the question of what happens to the Kurdish areas. You have the Turks fighting uh, along their border as well, and it's uh, it's still far from uh, um, an un, uh, far from a, a stable deal. Iran. Gave a credit of, I think, of $6.9 billion from an export bank and has continued to provide money uh, to Iran, to Syria. So Russia doesn't want to see that gone because they don't want to have to replace it and they don't have the money to replace it because Russia's economy is not strong. Putin is very clever in how he can manipulate the situation. But all of them distrust the. Um, the uh, uh, Iranians, although we had some developments this week where there is a deal made on the Caspian, and that's really important. Again, most media don't cover it or don't understand it, but Russia, Iran, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and Turkmenistan, these are the literal states, meaning the bordering states of the Caspian Sea. This took 22 years of talks, but now this is the largest enclosed body of water in the world and has about 48 billion barrels of oil and 9 trillion cubic meters of natural gas. And uh, there's still a question of designating as a sea or a lake, and everybody, I'm sure, laughs and said, what's the difference? The difference is how you apportion the wealth, because if it's sea, then um, if it's a lake, every nation just gets 20%, meaning five countries, each one one-fifth. If it's a sea, then it's dependent upon how big your border is. And Iran would be the big loser there. Wow, that's interesting. So, so that that deal signed this week, and you see that almost no coverage um, uh, of this very significant thing. And one of the things they do is they're barring NATO from from the Caspian. At least that's what the Iranians announced. And also, the Iranians announced that they were responsible that they gave the orders to the Houthis in Yemen to attack the two Saudi tankers, and they they attacked and. He, this General Shabani, we've talked about in the past, who's uh, the top guy of the Iran Revolutionary Guard, uh, said this in an interview, and that they had ordered these um, the pro-Iranian Houthis in Yemen to carry out the attack. Uh, Saudi Arabia stopped allowing its tankers to go through the Bab al-Mandab, through the straits there. Um, but it's interesting that once it was uh, revealed by memory, it was deleted from the FARS uh, Iranian websites. So they realized that this could be potentially very dangerous for them and further evidence of their real role in, in the region. So Iran is going to continue. They, they need this presence. They want this transnational uh, highway that will go through um, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and, uh, and um, Iran. This is critical for their hegemony and for their Persian Empire. The United States just created a new special task force that Brian Hook will be the special representative for Iran to to develop longer-term uh, policies. What I thought was really interesting is that Khamenei admitted yesterday that they made a mistake in letting the foreign minister, Zarif, carry out the negotiations and generally doing the negotiations on the deal. He said he thought it would bring foreign investment, and he realizes now that it's a mistake. Well, yeah, it was a mistake. And what we saw just in 24 hours, that there's a, a renewable energy investor, Kirkus, 
in from Great Britain that had a 500 million dollar euro sell, uh, a 500 million euro solar plant that they were power plant and they pulled out then on Tuesday the Belfinger which is the, one of the giant engineering groups in Germany said it's not renewing any business and the uh, an automotive supply company said it it halted all activity so again we're seeing despite all the european you know promises and urging of companies and going after the indians and others to stay there their own companies are all pulling out and and this is still before the november implementation of the oil sanctions which is coming even uh you know they they fell the exports fell about 1.2 million barrels in the previous administration now it's happening the decrease is even bigger and faster uh in terms of the number of barrels a day that are are disappearing off the market coming from there because um shipments in Europe the UAE and Japan uh have and half the flow to India have reduced their Iranian exports by about 1.5 million barrels a day uh over the last 6 months and these numbers may not seems significant but when you're talking about an economy that's on the margin and their ability to do a lot of the mischief depends on how much money and obviously they take the money away from the people but this is anybody can hear these numbers can understand how dire the situation could become for Iran and how important the sanctions are America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at com on the Nahum Siegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Whose economy is in worse shape, Syria or Iran? Well, we have a three-way competition right now. Syria is obviously devastated. They have nothing going on uh, virtually. Most of the, as I uh, indicated, most of the infrastructure, uh, I could give you all the statistics, but, you know, if three-quarters of the economy is destroyed, so they are by far worse. But Iran is half the country's in a drought, they don't have clean drinking water in much of the country. The um, industries are closing. Unemployment is probably 40% or higher, 60% in some areas. The, um, the, the government is begging people to use dollars and gold because they have shortage of their foreign reserves. The, um, uh, many companies obviously not selling to them, and so they are in uh, uh, there are serious shortages uh, of goods. You see that you don't see, but there are demonstrations virtually every day being carried out against the government by various sectors. Uh, the farmers are, are their, their land is parched. They're not producing, and this is a time when normally they would be. So the economy of Iran has been severely hurt by the sanctions, and Europeans can't compensate for it. Then you also have Turkey's economy is in collapse. The, the currency of Iran over the last year dropped 90%. I think the currency of, of uh, Turkey has dropped probably 40 or 50, 40% or more just in recent weeks and, and months. And, the, um, and they are also being hit by the sanctions, and it hurts them. It's, it's uh, ex, uh, taking a toll. And tourism is down. Other things are down in terms of uh, uh, of Turkey. Erdogan is very adamant. Qatar said they would put $15 billion into their banks. We'll, we'll see whether they actually um, do it. They are, are leaning towards Moscow increasingly. The United States cut off the sale of the Congress, cut off the sale of the F-35 
35s, the stealth bombers, which they were supposed to get 100 over the next 10 years. So that has been put on hold at the very least. And as I said, the next round of sanctions is uh, there could be more sanctions coming against uh, Turkey as well. Uh, so, uh, With that in uh, mind, why is he so strong when he speaks about the U.S. and the President of the United States? Do you think Erdogan would be a little bit more diplomatic if he's in that type of situation and doesn't want more sanctions? Well, partially it's Erdogan's character. You have to know him. He has uh, very glorified visions of himself and of, of his aspirations for the Ottoman Empire, like the Persian Empire that Khomeini wants. Um, you know, he is still exporting his uh, his vision of Islam, which is a Muslim Brotherhood-type vision, and building mosques all over Europe. And the, there are more more revelations about this, about the extent of control and how much he is, um, how active he is in in spreading this his message in his terms. So he has, you know, uh, he, uh, there are many people who feel that he has uh, distorted visions, and some have even stronger views. I'm talking about leaders in the region. But he has a strong army. It's It's been hurt badly by all of the arrests. But his pilot crew is down to a couple hundred, 300 or so, because he puts so many military people like judicial, like the media, like others, when he arrested 100,000 people. And he's still arresting people, charging them with being part of the you know the revolution and all traced to Feta Gulen, who's in Pennsylvania, and because America doesn't deport him to Iran, to, to Turkey, he's very upset. There's also a movement by uh, journalists now to go after the U.S. presence at the Insulik Air Force Base, which is a very critical base, a huge base in which we have invested a, a lot of money. And they're charging that they they want uh, the courts to arrest the pilots because they're saying they, too, are involved in the overthrow, which is all obviously concocted and made up. But the United States is shifting assets away from Insulik to other bases. Is there a diplomatic channel still open between Turkey and Israel? Yes, there are. Well, the ambassadors are there, and, and the fact is that trade has by and large remained stable, generally increasing over the years, uh, recent years when the uh, vitriol was uh, was uh, flowing. Um, you have various attempts at, at um, flotillas that Israel has moved quickly and, and efficiently to block them. We had one coming from Gaza even, but uh, others, that uh, one that, that came out of um, Palermo but had been all over Europe and obviously failed to penetrate. And the, um, um, and the Turks are still very much behind a lot of these movements. We know, you know, the Mavi Mamara, we know that the, the Turkish uh, officials were, and government uh, supported some of these efforts. He's certainly putting money into Jerusalem. And uh, our hope now is that because of the, the economic conditions that obtain there, uh, he will be much more limited in what he can do. Wow. Um, well, what's with the uh, Gaza mail? You saw that, that all the... the what is the story? <laughs> they, that they were, they, it happens here, too. You know, you see all these guys who hoard the mail and then they deliver it or don't. Oh, so this was not Israel, and this is the way people are painting it. This is not Israel holding back mail as a punishment. Well, no, it probably was that the... the well, you don't have connections. There's no interaction between right. Israel and Gaza. Who are you going to turn the mail over to? But they did, as part of this, turn over... Uh, I, I don't know if it was a government policy right. or a rogue policy. 
Uh, all right, we all want to know about elections. Um, <laughs> and by the way, if there are early elections, is it only going to be because of this draft law debate that can't be resolved? No. Uh, it, it might be for other reasons as well. Uh, absolutely. And the likelihood that you'll have elections, I think, grows. The Knesset goes out of session till after October, till after Sukkot, and the holidays and the... the um, and when he comes back, there are very good chances that he will call for elections. Uh, he's using this as leverage with the religious parties, saying they had two weeks that he would announce elections if they don't, because he, they don't want to go to elections. And I think most most of the parties don't see any gain for themselves if they're in elections. Uh, Likud would probably be the biggest gainer. That will depend, of course, what happens with his legal problems and, and other issues in the interim. The um, um, But there are... A variety of reasons why he he would want to do it. He he might want to do this before any indictment or anything comes down. But you need to give at least three months' notice. Mm -hmm. So that means the elections wouldn't be held until beginning of next year. And elections are generally already scheduled, I think, for for, uh, 2019. So it would be much later in the year. This way it would be uh, a, a little bit earlier. Right. Uh, the practice of questioning radical extremists who visit Israel. It does not bother me at all. What do you say about it? It generally doesn't bother me. It's a question of how it's done. I think that it was inappropriate for the prime minister to issue an apology. This should have come from a much lower level person. It escalates it. It makes it seem like it was an official decision when I'm sure it wasn't. And that they, you know, I, I get questioned when I go to Israel. Everybody gets questioned. And so if the questions became more political, then um, there may be reason, there may not. So I think it's a policy that should be reviewed. I think they have every right to to keep out those that are considered a threat to the country, and those who are not should be, um, you know, there should be some more uh, careful screening that uh, you don't have a situation where somebody who, who didn't pose a threat and is coming for a family event or whatever shouldn't be subjected to, to that kind of treatment. But you know the the question the question there are a lot of questions about you know the government now the uh, how it functions and yet the economy is stronger moody's rating them a1 you got a lot of positive developments in terms of the economic uh, news from israel so maybe it's just better to have a limited government and let everybody just do their thing <laughs> Is it relevant? Is it relevant if Jeremy Corbyn once visited the Knesset or did anything uh, in terms of a visit to Israel? Is that relevant to 2018? It's not relevant in the sense that uh, what he has done, the anti-Semitic stuff, the fact that now the revelations that he laid a wreath in, in Tunisia, the graves of the people carried out the attacks on the Israeli athletes at Munich. I mean, there has to be some point where everybody says it's enough. The guy has flirted with anti-Semitism, if not engaged in it. The, um, the, all the Jewish newspapers last Friday or weekend in, in Great Britain published a joint editorial against Corbyn. Uh, the, the record is clear. There cannot be tolerance. You can't have the major party in Great Britain, the second major party, led by somebody who holds these beliefs, and there is no... Uh, attempt to root him out and to to punish him. I have to say that you know it 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 contributes to the general climate in Britain, but also I think impacts in Europe. Uh, and the uh, I am equally concerned about the developments here when we see candidates emerging here, Democrat and Republican, who are uh, espouse 
Holocaust denial, anti-Semitic views, certainly anti-Israel views, and uh, I, I see the phenomenon of what we saw in Europe with losing the center happening here. I get every morning a report about statements made by candidates around the country, mostly for congressional offices, some even unchallenged. Uh, this woman, a Palestinian-American woman, who says she's going to vote against AIDS Israel, et cetera, and, and is very articulate, gets on television like the, uh, the woman in Queens and others, uh, and they are impacting beyond just their congressional borders. And, uh, and the media loves them, loves to put them on board because they are a different uh, point of view, and they challenge Israel, they challenge some of the conventions that we rely on in terms of U.S.-Israel relations. And you know that the Congress passed overwhelmingly extremely pro-Israel legislation in the last couple of weeks uh, when we were off, uh, increasing the aid package way beyond the $3.3 billion in many areas, in uh, counter-drone and, and anti-missile, in so many areas where they expanded uh, the assistance to, uh, to Israel. So Congress and the administration would be thanked, and, and thank God support remains strong. But I am worried about the undercurrents. I am worried about the trends in American politics, which tend to mimic what goes on, I believe, particularly in Britain, but in Europe. And there, the, the center has lost the party's move to the extreme right, extreme left. And I fear that that could happen here, and it means that we all have to examine this. We have to get the parties to. We've got to show zero tolerance when it comes to people who espouse anti-Semitic views, just as it wouldn't tolerate racist views. And the, the, if we cannot allow Israel to become a partisan issue, and the increasing polarization I think poses a long-term danger for us. And on top of that, it's not—it's realistic to say that Corbyn can become prime minister there. Uh, uh, exactly. That's why they have to get rid of him now, and and make it very clear that this is that you cannot have a Labour Party. And I want to see Tony Blair. I want to hear all of the other Labour and former Labour officials speak out. Many of them have. I'm not saying people haven't, and the Jewish community there. Uh, I think, has uh, found its voice with this, the editorials. It's one thing. That, the problem is the editorials speak more to the Jewish community, right. but they did get coverage in the general media. Um, the, uh, the the United Nations General Assembly, we were told last week, uh, falls on Cholomoyed Sukkis. And I assume it doesn't prevent the Prime Minister from coming in and addressing the General Assembly, right? So, uh, unfortunately, it always clashes with some yontif because it's in September, and it's going to. There are two days before Yantav, I think, when the uh, session will begin or the people will be arriving, because we have meetings with all the heads of state and foreign ministers during these days. This year will be much more uh, abbreviated. The prime minister is going to come after the second day of Yantav. He can leave the second day of Yantav right. uh, from Israel, arrive here probably that night um, or the next morning. So he will be here from. I think it's a Wednesday. Yeah, so his speech will either be Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, it won't be Wednesday. It'll so be Thursday, or it could be Friday, but it's, right. it's likely Thursday, and he will go back uh, Motzei Shabbos. Um, the, he has to be back for some chastor in Israel. Israel is uh, being accused, or the Mossad is being accused, uh, of um, taking out this Syrian scientist. Do you know that I think there's more reaction in the international press when Israel is accused of taking out a terrorist leader than when they take out a Syrian scientist? And you would think that the Syrian scientist might have more of a legitimate reason to 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 be you know given the opportunity to live than the terrorist leader would be. 
Uh, are you sometimes surprised that there's not more of an international reaction or uh, or outrage when we hear that Israel's being accused of taking out a scientist? Actually, I am, but uh, I hope that Israel or friends of Israel took him out. Um, is a very dangerous guy. He had built and was now rebuilding their uh, chemical weapon, other weapons capacity, um, and and you have to understand that when you, you, you taking out a terrorist leader is very critical. Right. But these guys can have a bigger impact if, in fact, he succeeded in. And you saw the nuclear scientists in Iran that met unfortunate accidents. Right. And others just think if they hadn't, how much more advanced Iran's uh, nuclear program would be just as one taking out OC, the Osirak reactor in Iraq and the reactor in Syria. Yeah, what but... our troops and everybody would have faced. But I am surprised sometimes that there isn't more reaction. But the fact is that people, countries do this. Yeah, I get that. But uh, I don't know, the the uh, the underlying uh, feeling, I always think, is that, you know, they they are innocent compared to what a you know a terrorist involved in regular terrorist. No, they're not. They're responsible no, I, for many more deaths I, I, than most I, of the terrorist leaders. I know, leaders. but most people and don't. One really... of the reasons you don't get more criticism is because most countries are relieved because you you think about what would have happened in Syria had they been allowed to develop all of these things. So they can cause by virtue of the research and the the chemical weapons. You saw how how, how much the how many people those chemical weapons these guys developed uh, killed in Syria let alone what they can do in the region. So people are relieved if, if, the, um, if this program is, is killed by killing him. Right, yeah, I get that. And world leaders, I assume, uh, would fall into that category. Just the media, I don't think, falls into that category. That's why I'm somewhat surprised. Uh, yeah. uh, Malcolm, well, they're waiting for the movie. I guess. Then they'll know if it's legitimate or not, depending on how the, <laughs> how the movie ends. Uh, if Hollywood tells them it is, then hey, then they're fine. Um, finally... Um, not to put you on the spot, but could, but could you weigh in on the Ron Lauder Naftali Bennett debate? Because I found that something interesting last week. I, I heard a presentation from the um, I don't remember his exact position, but somebody in a high position at Birthright, and someone asked him about the legitimacy of you know paying for this type of program, the one that sends students to Israel. They weren't challenging him; just you know they wanted to know what the feeling was. And he said, by the way. Another fringe benefit of all this is that these people come back and strengthen the Jewish community of the United States. And I'm saying to myself, wow, you know, we've gotten to this point where now when, when Jews anywhere in the world need something, they turn to Israel, as opposed to when Israeli Jews need something, they're turning to the U.S. and other countries. That's why the Ron Lauder argument, from my standpoint, seems so weak. Because it is almost becoming irrelevant to Israelis, whether there is jewish american support of israel agree or not well, it's a shifting situation israel today is stronger it's no I mean, it, hello yeah go ahead. yeah all of us remember the days when our families would send food or coffee or toilet paper and stuff to israel today israel is a high-tech marvel israel is strong israel has more independence but Ultimately, Israel still needs, and the National Security Council did an assessment and showed how the diaspora Jewish communities are a strategic asset, a vital asset uh, of Israel, and IDF agrees, everybody else agrees, so we can't afford a split. Uh, um, and I think that there has to be greater sensitivity, greater understanding, but I don't think we can blame Israel for the alienation of American youth, that people 
give no Jewish education and background to their children until they're 18, send them to Israel on a birthright trip, which I think is very important, and, and if it's done right, and has an impact uh, on them. Uh, but the, the, the fact is that every day we are losing hundreds of Jews, and it's not because of Israel. Now, has there been, is there a sense of alienation or more growth of indifference towards Israel? Yes, there's a growth of indifference towards everything, but we have it in particular in Israel, and when you have, you know, the, the documentation uh, like it was presented, I think that it was a mistake, and I've told it to him, that uh, he should, if he wanted to impact Israel, they should have published it in Hebrew in Israel. And ah, let the people of Israel read it and think about it. The problem is in the New York Times, right. it becomes a, a weapon in, uh, against uh, against Israel, and they're all too happy to, to be part of us. And Ronald Lord is a great supporter of Israel, a great supporter of Jewish education, and many amazing things that, that he has done. But First of all, throwing in everything into this thing. The, the, the rabbi who got arrested in Haifa had nothing to do with a federal po- government policy. Some local decision. And because he did something that violated the law, that they raided his house at the, you know, in the morning and all that, I thought was really dumb, and I said so. Right. But you can't throw it. And the nation state bill does not say things that people are saying. I'm talking about in general now. And there, there are ways that they could have done this better. I don't know. You know, a lot of people feel it was unnecessary in Israel. A lot of people feel it was necessary, but it could have been done smarter. There are problems, and there has to be sensitivity. But also there are so many who exploit these issues and want to drive divisions for, for their own purposes. Because they, politically in Israel, you know, they get visibility. They attack the government. Here people get the notice. And, you know, there are all sorts of people, organizations, marginal, who, who exploit any tension with Israel for their own purposes. So... The, you know, Chachamim, he's going to be divrechem when, you know, wise people have to be wise with our words, applies to everybody, and especially the time when we have uh, Israel under increasing assault and criticism, the BDS, the, these Congress people, they will draw comfort because when somebody who is so pro Israel and so, been so active, and who didn't, I think, intended for that to have that impact, um, uh, says things like that, it is very harmful. All right. Uh, Malcolm, you around next week? I, God willing, will be here next week. All right. We look forward to it. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We are glad that the weekly update is back up and rolling here at JM in the AM.